Hello, history nerds and historians. My name is Christina, and this is F-Top History. This is where we talk about a little tidbit from history. That's super fucked up. So I know that I told you that I would go back to the Tudor series after I did Edie Windsor. And y'all, I tried. I tried really hard. I tried to sit down and research and write this episode about Edward VI and Lady Jane Grey, mostly Lady Jane Grey because she is a really interesting and tragic story. But I I can't. I, I can't sit down and talk about someone who died over 200 years before the United States was even a country when we're in the reality that we're in. So instead... Today, we're going to talk about a badass woman who stood up to the absolute fuckery that her country was trying to pull against her people. Today, we're going to talk about Bernadette Devlin McAlisky, and I think this will be my longest episode yet. Um, I'm not sure if I'll split it into two parts. We'll see how I feel as I'm going along. I actually just got finished taking a class on the Troubles in Northern Ireland, and I don't know if it's because of where I was raised or because I would have been in school when the troubles were ending and people were trying to move on from it, or because I went to school in Florida and Florida has like one of the worst education systems in the country. But I literally never learned about the troubles in Ireland in school until like right now, and I'm 30 years old. And although the circumstances were completely different, There are a lot of things that I was reading that if you don't know it's about Northern Ireland specifically 50 years ago or so, you could very well think that this is someone's account of something that's happened in the United States, like right now. So I'm going to give a very brief Irish history in like five to 10 minutes or less kind of thing and give a not at all complete background of the troubles in Ireland and just kind of give like a framework of some important information If that's something that you want to know more about, I'm definitely willing to do an episode about that at some point, but not today. Today we're talking about Bernadette and her fucking fantastic feminine rage and middle finger to the fuckery. (laughs) Do you guys like that alliteration? I was an English major. So (laughs) without further ado, sit back, relax and practice your, oh good God, what the fuck faces. Okay, so Irish history is super complex. And like I said, I'm not going to be entirely inclusive in this. And I am not an Irish historian. So this is what I have researched. This is what I have gathered. I'm sorry in advance if I miss something or if I slightly misinterpret something. But we're all learning together. Okay, friends. So there is scientific evidence of people being in Ireland as far back as 30,000 years ago. And in a religious sense, there's evidence of Christianity in Ireland as early as the 4th century. And by the 6th century, it was a very Christian nation. At this point, 
there was only Catholicism and Ireland is still largely Catholic. This is important because a lot of people try to say that the troubles in Ireland was largely a religious war and it was so much more than that. But it is important to talk about religion because that is kind of an aspect of it. But we really start to see everything emerge and issues arise in the 1100s. So in 1169, we see first of really like the issues with England when the English invaded in what's known as the Norman invasion. From what I read, they were invited by a man <laughs> named, uh, I- I'm, I'm going to say the anglicized version of this because I am a hypocrite, I guess. So the anglicized version of this man's name is Dermot McMurrah. And he had, from what I've gathered, been deposed for kidnapping someone else's wife and was trying to regain his kingship in Ireland. So he asked King Henry II to come and help him over from England. He also got help from the second Earl of Pembroke, whose name was Richard de Clare, whose nickname was Strongbow, who hated King Henry. So McMurrow was just like playing both sides, trying to get his kingship back. And he didn't care how he got it. And then the English were like, hey... This is a mighty fine place you got here. Uh, we, we're we just going to stay. And the Irish were kind of like, no, thank you. You came to serve a purpose. We didn't even want you here. Uh, and now that's that's done. So thank you. But it's it's time for you to leave. And then in 1171, King Henry II was like, no, and landed with a large army to assert his control over the lands that he felt were owed to him. And this invasion was backed by the Roman Catholic Church because they wanted to push Irish reform. And there was also that like capitalistic motive as well to get taxes from the Irish. And then a few years later, they signed a treaty that gave Henry lordship over the conquered Irish lands. And then the Irish leader who controlled like the rest of Ireland at that time swore his fealty to Henry II. So like technically Henry ruled over all of Ireland, which is not cool with the Irish people. So this treaty totally fell through and there was a lot of fighting until Henry just decided that his son was the ruler of Ireland, like the lion, the witch, and the audacity of this bitch to just come in and be like, it's amazing what you've done with the place. I uh, I like this land. It's it's some nice land. I'm just going to take it now. Uh, look at me. Look at me. <laughs> I, I'm the captain now. I'm the king now. So <laughs> the English involvement kind of decreased over the next couple hundred years until our favorite friend, Henry VIII, see, we're still talking about the Tudors, uh, decided that he wanted to conquer Ireland and just declared himself king. In 1541, probably to look super cool and manly to his child bride, Catherine Howard. Also, the audacity of this bitch, too. Like, you can't just declare yourself king. Well, I mean, I guess you can just declare yourself king. But you shouldn't be able to just declare yourself king of of a whole ass country. Like, can I just, like, build up a slight political power and then just, like, walk into the governor's office and be like, hello, I'm the governor now. I have some ideas. Like, no. But apparently, like kingship over a country (laughs) it's just totally fair game it's history is bananas people (laughs) so 
King Henry VIII, also being a Protestant king, was a big issue, and Ireland became sort of this, like, battleground between the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation. So there's all this religious fighting, but also Irish fighting the English over the Irish being, like, basically, like, hey, could you, could you maybe leave? Uh, but they did not leave, and in the 1550s, Ireland began being colonized by West Countrymen. So these were groups of people who advocated at first for Irish occupation, essentially. Um, And then later they advocated to fight the Spanish. And then they were the people in the late 1500s and early 1600s who were publishing the propaganda pieces in early colonial American days that got the poor English people who literally had no other prospects to enter into indentured servitude over in the British American colonies that led to the deaths of like thousands of people, both those within servitude and also the indigenous people who lived in America at the time. And then in 1601, the Irish forces were defeated at the Battle of Kinsale, which began sort of Ireland becoming part of the English and later British Empire. This was, of course, quickly followed by England's longtime Scottish like enemies, nemesis, when James VI of Scotland became James I of England and, you know, like kind of united those countries because he was king of both of them. So fast forward almost like 200 years. There's continuing of fighting and all of that stuff during that time. But again, this is not an all-inclusive Irish history. So to fast forward almost 200 years, in 1798, there was an Irish rebellion against the British rule in Ireland organized by the Society of United Irishmen, which was a Republican group, which, I mean, of course, I'll say it now, Republican in Ireland means something very different than Republican in the United States. The Republicans in Ireland want Ireland to be again, to debase this into super simplistic terms, like their own country, free of English rule. And then there are unionists who are pro-Britain, pretty much, again, to super simplify it. So this rebellion in 1798 could have led to the deaths of anywhere between like 10 and 50,000 people, which I know is like a large discrepancy, but they wouldn't have recorded everything. Just like Again, to bring it back to like my area of research, we don't know how many people were executed for witchcraft because the people who wrote the histories didn't really care to document all of it. And during this rebellion, there were some Republican won battles, but they ultimately lost the war. And this was then followed by the Acts of Union in 1800 that abolished Irish Parliament and then Ireland became part of the United Kingdom and joined British Parliament. Is joined the right word? Uh, I don't think joined is the right word. I uh, forced to join British Parliament, I guess, is the better wording for it. Um, Yeah, so after that, a lot of the rights of the Catholics in Ireland were stripped. And in 1829, they got some of those back with the Catholic Emancipation Um, And then uh, there was the Great Famine in the 1840s. So the feuding kind of took like a backseat because people were just, you know, dying (laughs) left and right. But after the famine was over and people started to recover in the 1880s, there was the Irish Parliamentary Party that attempted to achieve what they called home rule, 
which was basically the ability for the Irish to govern themselves. Again, to super simplify it. And then to fast forward a little bit, about 30 or so years later, in 1914, the Government of Ireland Act was passed, which is also known as the Home Rule Act. This was the first law that was passed by the UK Parliament that allowed a part of the UK proper to actually govern itself. So some of the colonies in the British Empire were able to govern themselves, but nowhere really in like United Kingdom, Britain, whatever proper were people allowed to govern themselves. So this Home Rule Act passed in 1914 was pretty progressive for Britain (laughs) to allow them to have some say over their lives over in Ireland. But then... Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand just like had to go get himself assassinated and start World War One. I'm I'm kidding. Um, but, but that's it's actually really terrible what happened to him. But because World War One started in 1914, this Home Rule Act was postponed and it never became effective. So the Irish were promised the ability to govern themselves and and never given it. They were just like dangled the carrot in front of them. And just were waiting in the hopes that when the war was over, that what they were promised would be given to them. But some people in Ireland viewed this war as like, not the most terrible thing to happen because England was distracted just a little and it was the perfect time to launch another rebellion. So on Easter Sunday, 1916, some leaders of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, along with like other Republican organizations and groups, met up and planned an armed rebellion, which is the first armed rebellion in Irish history. They were planning on it being nationwide, but it ended up becoming relatively localized to Dublin because some of the plans had got out and people were arrested and and they were kind of like, well, we're still doing this. so We'll just keep it kind of localized. And on Easter Monday, these Republicans mobilized and took over strategic points around the city, like the post office and places like that. And this armed rebellion lasted for the entire week until April 29th, when the Republicans surrendered. So during that week, 590 people died, 374 of which were civilians, of which 38 of those were children, 116 British soldiers, 77 of the rebellion Republicans, and 23 police officers. So in the aftermath, something like... 3,500 people were arrested and trials were held secretly and illegally and 90 people were sentenced to death and 14 of the Republican leaders were executed by firing squad over the next two weeks. Now, there were a lot of people in Ireland who were actually not supportive of the rebellion leading up to it and while it was happening. And there were a lot of people even in Dublin that didn't know that it was going to happen But it came out that a lot of the trials, like I said, were done illegally. So they were illegal in the in the sense that they were kept secret and the defendants were not allowed to have any sort of defense at all, even just defending themselves, let alone having a lawyer. And some of the people who were executed weren't leaders of the rebellion. They were like related to one of the leaders or involved in a previous war. Or I think one of them even I think I read one of them killed a British police officer, when the officer broke into his house and was like raiding it and threatening him, which by the way was happening left and right during this, there was an incident called the North King Street Massacre that happened during this time where British troops broke into people's homes and killed at least 15 civilians who they claimed were rebels who were literally just sitting inside of their homes doing nothing. 
And while the executions were happening, which began on May 3rd, which is literally like four days after the surrender, which just speaks to the volumes about how these trials were conducted because there's no way to have any sort of fair trial in four fucking days. Like (laughs) April 29th, arrested. April 30th, trial. May 3rd execution is the beginning of it. Like that's just, that's just insane. So um, anyway, while these executions were happening, there was just like more and more public outrage in Ireland. And on May 12th, when two more people were executed, there was such public outrage that the rest of the death sentences were commuted to jail sentences. But a lot of people were then subsequently sent to internment camps. And many of them had like nothing to do with the uprising. So there were people who were like relatively content with how life was before this rebellion and following the East Rebellion, they changed their opinions drastically and their stance uh, drastically. And Republican groups like Sinn Féin began rising. They won almost three quarters of the parliament seats in 1918. And then in January of 1919, the Irish wrote essentially like a declaration of independence. There was then an Irish War of Independence from 1918 to 1921, which ended in a treaty that gave 26 counties in Southern Ireland independence. And this is the area now that's known as the Republic of Ireland. And then the six counties in Northern Ireland were still part of the UK, but they gained some of their own home rule so they could have a say in governing themselves. But it isn't like all of Northern Ireland was pro-British and Protestant and they were happy with their decision. And that's seen in the troubles in Ireland. It's actually bred a lot of fear in Northern Ireland because you have a lot of like Catholic Republicans who didn't want Ireland to be split. But at the same time, you also have Protestants who are pro-British for the most part, who were scared of being ruled over by the Catholics and like losing their rights and being under the thumb of the Pope and all of that. And they were worried of being persecuted as well for their beliefs. So there were a lot of things that were done directly after this split that sort of like try to ensure not only British rule in Northern Ireland, but Protestant rule in Northern Ireland. So in 1922, you see the passing of the Special Powers Act, which was largely put into place to fight against things like Republican rebels. And it allowed things like um, internment without trial, searches without warrants, censorship. And this applied to any person who was just suspected of trying to incite violence or disturb the peace. There didn't even have to actually be like any warranted cause, like not even just a warrant, but any like actual cause. Like if a police officer or a soldier just suspected you of doing something, they could arrest you and throw you into an internment camp for who knows how long, just like until you learned your lesson or until they forgot about you and you just stayed there for the rest of your life. This act was enforced by the Royal Ulster Constabulary, who carried weapons and were heavily trained in military tactics. There was also the Ulster Special Constabulary, largely the B-Specials is what they were called, who were exclusively Protestant and were known to be extremely violent towards Catholics. Also in 1922, we start to see a lot of gerrymandering. So they redid a lot of the borders in Northern Ireland to make sure that there was a lack of Catholic representation, which then led to 
this restriction of voting rights as well. So <laughs> to make like a very complicated political ruling simplistic, not everyone had the right to vote. So if you were like renting out a space in someone's home or if you lived at home, then you couldn't vote along with a myriad of other reasons that they were restricting voters' rights. But Catholics were known to be poorer because of the discrimination that they faced in Northern Ireland. And also the Catholics tended to have large families. So even if the parents owned their home, you could have like 14 kids in your house. And if a child was not affluent enough to rent their own home and were living at home with their parents, they wouldn't be able to vote. And in places like Derry, their gerrymandering caused a housing crisis and made it so that these large Catholic families were living in these old dilapidated houses and they weren't allowed to build new houses or expand outside of their very small area that the gerrymandering lines established for them. And also you saw a lot of discriminatory hiring practices where they would like post that they had a job available and then you would come in and they'd be like, great, all of your qualifications look perfect. Remind me where you went to school. And if you were to say like, oh yeah, St. something and something like St. Patrick, St. Mary's, whatever, then they would know that you were Catholic and they wouldn't give you the job. So a lot of issues in Northern Ireland were political, but also there was that discrimination between the two religions. And that's not to say that Catholics were not also discriminatory towards Protestants. It sort of went back and forth and it was just this like, like, uh, air of just, it was just like bad energy <laughs> to go like super woo woo. It was just like a lot of like bad toxic energy in Northern Ireland in a lot of places. So in the 1950s, the IRA or Irish Republican Army began this border campaign targeting Northern Ireland, trying to overthrow the British rule there because they wanted the Republic of Ireland to be the entirety of Ireland and felt that Britain had no business being in their country. And the, the compromise that split Ireland was not enough. And in the UK general election of 1955, Sinn Féin candidates were elected in a lot of areas in Northern Ireland. So it showed that there was Republican support in Northern Ireland and not everyone wanted to be under English rule. But they were because Northern Ireland was under a unionist based government based out of Stormont. So there was all of this like civil and political unrest within this when Bernadette Devlin was born. Okay, <laughs> so that was a little bit longer than five to 10 minutes. But like I said, that, that background is not at all inclusive of everything. I feel like I missed quite a bit, but I don't want to get distracted and, and stop even more talking about Bernadette because like at this point, I'm already at like 20 minutes of recording time. So <laughs> we're still not going to talk about Bernadette yet, though, because I, sometimes when I talk about people, I like to talk about their parents or their family first, because I'm very much of the opinion that a lot of the way that we are as people is because of our parents and whether that be a positive or negative thing. Like sometimes it doesn't mean we become our parents, but like we learn how to be the kind of people that we don't want to be, you know? So I think Bernadette looking into her parents, we can see a lot of the traits that she has and that she inherited from them. So her parents were both named Devlin as their surname, because in Cookstown, where she lived, it was largely a Devlin area, she said. She said that everyone in town, for the most part, was either a Devlin or a Quinn and like, were somehow like distantly related, but like, there weren't like kissing cousins. It wasn't <laughs> like brothers and sisters were marrying and first cousins were marrying necessarily. It was just like, 
like my maiden name was Butler and that is a very popular last name and it would be like me marrying someone who's butler who's probably like somewhere down the line distantly distantly related to me but they're not you know they're not close so her mother came from the group of devlins that were known as the fair-haired devlins and then her father's group of devlins was known as the fighting devlins because they were often fighting although before that they were known as the hawker devlins because they were traveling salespeople. so a lot of people in the town kind of looked down on bernadette's father's family and didn't really treat them with a lot of respect so her father was named john james devlin and he was born in 1910 in he had this sort of like love-hate relationship with the English. He didn't hate the English or even necessarily the British soldiers because like even his father was a British soldier for a while, but he hated England and the British system of oppression that you found in Northern Ireland. And this hatred or dislike probably grew even more when he was issued an insurance card that read political prisoner. And when he was given this insurance card, he was immediately terminated from his job and had a really hard time finding any jobs in Northern Ireland and eventually had to start going to England for work. So this meant that Bernadette and her five siblings very rarely saw him because he would work all week in England and then come home only on the weekends and holidays if he could afford to. And he was never told why his insurance card read political prisoner. He most likely was a Republican, but... I mean, he, according to Bernadette, he was never told why this happened. Bernadette said pretty much like all of her Republican beliefs came from him because they did, when they did see him growing up, he told his children a lot of stories about Irish mythology and Irish history, including like the battles and invasions, but English oppression, um, Irish uprising, the English-Irish trade agreement, the effects on the country, the effects on the economy, and all that stuff that, like I mentioned in the beginning of this episode. And even though she didn't know for sure if he was part of the IRA, she always suspected that he was. After he died when she was nine years old, this was in the 1950s when those border wars were beginning and happening. And she says that she remembers her mother made a comment basically to the effect of, well, at least the British soldiers won't get him now that he's dead. Bernadette's mother was named Elizabeth Bernadette Devlin, but she mostly went by Lizzie and she was born in 1920. Her background was very different than Bernadette's father's background. So her family were mostly farmers and they also owned a pub and were relatively respected in town. I'd argue that her mother was even slightly feared in town based off of some of the things that I read. So Lizzie was an exceptional student, but her mother forced her to leave school at the age of 14 to help take care of her family. So her mother at that point was spending a lot of time trying to make their pub successful and was apparently having this mindset of like, why pay someone to look after my children when I have a perfectly capable daughter to look after my children, you know? So Bernadette very much respected her mother and how Christian her mother was. She said that her mother was the kind of person who took who looked to God and did what she felt she had to do, which at this point in her life was like taking care of her family. So Bernadette was quoted to say that her mother was despairingly Christian. You could have kicked her 50 times a day and she would still have turned the other cheek and not just in a passive way. If you tripped in the action of kicking her, she would have lifted you up knowing that as soon as you got on your own two feet, you're going to kick her again. Bernadette felt 
that she inherited some of this like martyr mindset from her mother, but she also inherited moral courage from her mother. And she also, just like Bernadette's father, didn't hate the British. She didn't hate Protestants. She just sort of like disliked the situation. Um, But she didn't even do it to the same degree as Bernadette's father. So like one interesting thing that I read that sort of supports the whole mindset that it wasn't just a religious war between the people of Northern Ireland was Lizzie Devlin um, was actually planning on marrying a Protestant named Sammy. And he later actually became a British soldier as well. So she met him on vacation one year and like fell in love with him. And her mother did not approve. And it was this whole big issue. And Bernadette in a book that she wrote called The Price of My Soul said that her mother very well would have gone to marry Sammy if it wasn't for her foot. So there's this whole story that Bernadette's mother, Lizzie, had a collapsed arch in her foot. And because she was the family member that was supposed to be taking care of everything, her her family wasn't really taking her serious about it for a while. And when it finally got so bad, Sammy took her to a doctor. The doctor told her she needed surgery. And she was like, no, thank you. I don't want to do this. I'll suffer for the rest of my life. Thanks. And Sammy actually like, took her and forced her back into the doctor's office and sort of like forced the surgery on her um, as far as Bernadette's interpretation of it goes. And she was like very obviously uncomfortable about this and was in a lot of pain recovering from her surgery. But being such a Catholic woman, she would go to church and sort of pray about it. And one day she's in church and she's like crying loudly and praying to God saying basically like, if you could just make my foot better and make it so that I can walk comfortably again, I will do whatever I can to be the best Catholic girl necessary. I will listen to my mother. I will marry a Catholic boy. I will have Catholic children. Just please like help me make my foot better. And while she was doing this, John James Devlin was in church and he was also conflicted because he was also in love with a Protestant woman named Peggy. And he was kind of morally conflicted about this because he was very Catholic and, you know, having that internal struggle of, can I marry someone who hypothetically stands against everything I believe in? When, you know, Lizzie walks in and is making this big stink and he pretty much walks up to her and is like, hey, so if you talked to someone about whatever is bothering you, would you maybe like shut the fuck up already so that other people can pray in peace, please and thank you? And the two lived happily ever after. <laughs> Not really, but they did get married. Um, Lizzie's foot improved. She held up to her side of the bargain to God. Lizzie's mother did not necessarily approve of the union because she didn't want her daughter marrying one of the fighting hawker devlins. So when they got married, there were barely any people in the church because nobody wanted to go against her mother. And when they had their first child, the midwife ended up being the godmother because nobody was wanting to step forward to support them. And they ended up having six children. And the third of those children was Bernadette. So Bernadette was born on April 23rd, 1947 in Cookstown County, Tyrone, Northern Ireland. In her book, she mentioned that this is the day of the Feast of St. George, who is the patron saint of England. And she always thought that that was kind of ironic and later said that she preferred to think that her birth celebrated April 23rd, 1916, which was Easter Sunday in 1916, when the Easter Rising began. But again, just like her parents, she didn't necessarily hate the British. Like Sammy and Peggy, the Protestant people that her parents almost married, became like aunts and uncles to the Devlin children growing up. And at one point, Bernadette wrote that she would have much preferred that Sammy had been her father just because of the type of person that he was. 
And then to push that even farther later on, when her parents were trying to get a house, they applied to this like housing organization that provided homes to people with lower incomes in Northern Ireland. And they needed to show that they were good tenants, that they had enough income to pay for this home and needed two references. And again, because everyone was so afraid of Lizzie's mother, nobody wanted to sign off on these references. And the people who ended up signing off on the references were Protestant men who lived in town. Bernadette also talks about when when her father died when she was nine. She had like all of these people come out of the woodwork trying to show their support or whatever, but it didn't feel like actual support. She said the only person that she felt that truly helped them during that time was their Protestant neighbor. And then later on, she was elected to parliament and was in England. It was British Protestant people who provided her refuge from the paparazzi who were like going crazy. She said as a child, some of the worst people that she actually encountered were the Catholic Irish in her town. Like when her father died, they lived on welfare benefits, which she said her father paid towards and and it's what they were owed and that the whole organization and system was there for that reason. And yet the people who worked there were absolutely terrible and treated them like they were scum. She said at one point, I'm not a socialist because of any high flown intellectual theorizing. Life has made me one. But she was political from like a very young age, very early in her life. When she was 12, she entered a talent competition with her school. And there were three tiers that you had to prepare some sort of talent for. And she recited three political pieces. The first two were known as The Rebel and The Fool and were written by Patrick Pierce, who was one of the leaders of the Easter Rising, who was executed. I believe he was the first person executed for his involvement in the Easter Rising on like May 3rd of 1916. And then the other speech that she recited was known as Speech from the Dock, which was given by Robert Emmett before his execution for treason in 1803 because of his involvement with the rebellions that were happening at that time. She actually won this talent contest, but she said the people in the town were not supportive of it at all. And that a lot of them thought that she had like blackmailed the judges and that she was threatening to accuse them of discrimination if she didn't win at 12 years old and said that on the last day when she won, she actually had to have a police escort home. One quote that I read from her that I absolutely like love has to do with this political talent competition that she did. And and she said that when she got home, she remembered her mother being delighted that she had enough of her father in her to go somewhere that she was hated and look people straight in the face. And that is one of the things I read that is something that we can speak of and use now with all of the political unrest that's happening here in the United States. And there are more quotes from her that like I'll pepper in as we're going because I literally just wrote a 20 page paper on her. So I'm full of information and quotes from Bernadette Devlin. I am full of so much information that is not even like making its way into this podcast. Um, She's become one of my heroes. She is elevated to the leagues of Mary Ellen Pleasant. Um, I will like incorporate her into my life as one of the people that I look up to for like the rest of forever because I love some of the stuff that she did. Uh, which we'll continue to talk about now. So growing up, I think you could say that she was influenced a lot by her parents, but also a lot by her school. Because 
she was Catholic. She went to Catholic school. And her secondary school was St. Patrick's. And it was ran by a woman named Mother Beninus, who was a Republican socialist Irish woman. She, unlike her parents, believed that anything English was bad and truly hated the English because of the suffering that they caused her family. Um, Bernadette doesn't really go into like the specifics of this suffering that that was caused, but she's quoted as saying that she didn't have any problem with Irish Protestants, but she also felt that you couldn't really trust them or put up with them. But to the Irish Catholic families, Mother Beninus was extremely kind-hearted, so much so that it became a detriment to the school. Because if someone like couldn't pay their bill, she would never refuse them. She would just allocate funds from elsewhere in the budget, or she would do a fundraiser or something. Like she would never tell her students no and never deny anybody. And Bernadette excelled very quickly at this school. She learned Gaelic and became like really proficient in it and won all sorts of awards and Mother Meninas just like loved her for this. I kind of would look the other way at times as she did some of the political things that she did while she was in school, like started political club with some of the other girls in the grade uh, when she was a senior in high school. So the girls had like commandeered a part of the library and they would like sneak coffee in and just have these like little meetings where they would talk about the political like standing of Ireland and and all of like the societal pressures that they were under in Northern Ireland and a lot of them were talking about leaving either by going to the Republic of Ireland or just to another country altogether but Bernadette wanted to stay she thought that if she stayed that she could actually try to make a difference in Northern Ireland and she wasn't afraid to speak up to the people that she respected like around the same time that she was participating in these little like political meetings with people in her grade, she said that her history teacher had come up to her and asked if she could basically make like a poster because some of the younger grades were having a hard time like grasping everything that she was talking about. So Bernadette made this poster of like all the stuff having to do with Irish history. And because Ireland and Britain were so closely intertwined during a lot of Irish history, she included some of the the British people on there and some of their contributions as well. And she said that she remembered Mother Beninus coming in and being like, oh, this is cute. Who did this? But when she looked closer and she saw that it was just covered with a bunch of British people, she tore it off the wall and ripped it to pieces and called Bernadette in and was like, did you do this? And Bernadette was like, no, I didn't rip it off the wall and destroy it. Um, that actually kind of pisses me off a little bit because I worked really hard on that. And Mother Beninus was like, I tore it off the wall and destroyed it. Did you make this that has British people on it? And Bernadette was like, yeah, because they're part of our history. And Mother Beninus was pretty much like, there will be no British scum in my school. Like, this is appalling. You can make it again and you can not include them. How dare you? And Bernadette looked this woman in the face that she respected and called her a close-minded bigot and like just went about her life. And Mother Beninus was chasing me around like, don't you call me that? How dare you speak to me like that? I will not have a child in my school talk to me like that. And she's like, talk to you like what? Call you a bigot? Like it was insane because she was just not afraid to stand up to people that were close-minded or that were causing harm. And this was in defense of the British because to her, like 
it was not against the British. It was not against the politics. Like her father, it was against the British political system and the oppression of the British government in Northern Ireland that she was fighting against. And she took this mindset with her when she graduated and went to Queen's University in Belfast. And she said that she went to university with some vague notion of being able to one day improve some aspect of Northern Ireland. And she was hoping that being in college in the 60s, that there would be this like air of political freedom and open mindedness and like civil rights and all that kind of stuff. And she was just vastly disappointed with the political societies on campus. She said that the only group that she went to that she liked was the Folk Society because they sung like folk songs and they would sing American black folk music um, and talk about like the civil rights movement that was happening in America. And she said like that was the most political group that she joined, which was a group that would literally got together and sang folk songs. And that the only time that she was a little bit intrigued by a political society and a little bit like excited about what they might do was in 1967 in her third year the minister of home affairs william craig banned all republican clubs on college campuses stating that they were simply just a front for the ira which then led to the formation of the republican club at queen's university and they got together and made this whole show of a protest where they like carried a coffin to the minister's home saying that they were mourning the death of democracy and all of this and it was just like super great and she was very excited for it and then the organization just like died after that and she was so angry about this she said she was so frustrated with just this overall like apathy and nobody actually wanting to do anything and and like the youth is the future and we're sitting here full of ideas with the ability to try and change things and no one is doing everything and she recalls making what she called terrorist plans to like blow up bridges and like set fire to parks and blowing up the American communication base and dairy. But she wouldn't do it because this violence that she was feeling, if she were to like tell someone her plan, like go to the IRA, tell them the plans and then them carry it out. She couldn't shake the feeling that like someone might be there where, you know, they would go and they would try and burn this place down or blow this place up at nighttime when there wasn't supposed to be anyone there. But what if there was still someone there? What if there was like a homeless person taking refuge? And she didn't want anyone to die because of her in the name of justice. So she started seeking out peaceful means in civil rights associations. And she actually read about her first civil rights march in the newspaper. So on August 24th, 1968, the Campaign for Social Justice and the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association organized the first Northern Ireland Civil Rights March. During the march, there were like loyalist and unionist counter demonstrators, but it was ultimately successful. And she walked away from it being really hopeful for the civil rights movement and being excited to be involved in something that could actually impact Northern Ireland's political systems and hoping that she could actually make a change in Northern Ireland working with these groups. And she was very excited for the next March, which happened just over a month later on October 5th, 1968. This March was in Derry and organized by the Derry Housing Committee, as well as the NICRA, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. And the March was actually banned by William Craig, the same guy who banned the Republican Club. So just like with the Republican Club, 
they did it anyway. And this led to even more people showing up than would have normally because now it was discrimination for a march that was already about discrimination in the housing organizations, you know? So the march had barely began when the police came and started breaking them up. Bernadette said that this was the first time that she saw Eamon McCann. He became a really large part of the Northern Ireland civil rights movement. And he got on a chair and said that these demonstrators had three options, that they could go home, that they could just sit down and have their meeting right there and let the police, you know, stop them from proceeding, or they could walk into the police barricade until each person was knocked down and, you know, get injured for their cause, essentially. And according to Bernadette, when he made this speech, that's when the police began seeing the march as more of a threat and they just charged at them before the decision could even really be made of what they were going to do. So the police like beat the protesters off the street. They blasted them with water cannons. And Bernadette said that she recalled just being frozen in place because like everyone always talks about the fight or flight, but there's actually the third F, which is freeze. And that's what a lot of people experience when they're in danger or scared. And that's what she did. And that She thought that, like, perhaps because she wasn't running away from people, that that's why she wasn't really injured. She said she remembers just, like, watching the police who were beating people down and then beating them again before they could get up. And the look of delight that was on their face. And she was standing there. And I guess at one point, this man that she didn't even know ran up to her and grabbed her and was like, what are you doing? You need to get out of here. Come on. You need to run. Let's go. And he began pushing her. And as he pushed her, A police officer came and smacked him so hard along the head that he needed stitches. And he was standing in the spot that Bernadette was standing in just like five seconds beforehand. And a lot of people in Northern Ireland who lived during this time or studied Irish history say that October 5th, 1968 was when the troubles in Ireland really began. Um, Sorry, I'm like having a coughing fit. (laughs) Now... There's this argument between if the Troubles in Ireland is like a culmination of a bunch of things that happened in the past, like what we talked about at the beginning of the episode, and it was just a continuation of all of these skirmishes and fights that have been happening since like 1169 or 1171, you know, or if the Troubles in Ireland was a catalyst and it was something like like a tinderbox or a powder keg greatly like just getting ready to explode and then something like this the October 5th housing march or something like Bloody Sunday, which we'll talk about in a little bit, was the catalyst that began it. And I'm not sure where Devlin lies on that opinion, but she did say that the police officers actually did the civil rights movement a favor on this day because people were outraged after this incident that a peaceful protest was met with such grotesque violence on the side of the police and that the attacks from a perceived threat, not from an actual threat against them, but a perceived threat. And this outrage fueled the civil rights movement. She said it gave it life in one day. And she said that this is also the beginning of her civil rights commitment, that she was passionate about civil rights beforehand, and that there was something that she knew was wrong. But being in this protest and seeing what happened made her know that this is something that she wanted to do and dedicate her life to pretty much. Because she was so angry. She was so angry that she fantasized about going to every police station in Northern Ireland and systematically slaughtering every police officer. And that, of course, was like not something that she did. But she was so enraged by the police brutality 
she thought about it. And again, this is something that is a completely different situation in Northern Ireland, but reflects on some of the things that are happening now in America. But Bernadette had too much value for human life and was developing this ideology that violence was futile and it would just perpetuate itself and that nonviolence was the only way to make the civil rights movement successful. And that if they were nonviolent, even if police officers and counter demonstrators were violent in response to them, that the demonstrators that were working towards the civil rights movement would not be seen as the negative ones. And she was very much inspired by like Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement in America and how they would handle things with their marches. So when Bernadette returned to Queens University after this protest, within a couple days, there was a small protest on her college campus against the like 125% fee increase or something like that. And after that, she was part of the foundation of the People's Democracy. So the People's Democracy was a civil rights organization that was started by students. And they had six main aims that they were working towards, which was one man, one vote. So like we talked about with people being restricted with the rights to vote in Northern Ireland, they wanted to end gerrymandering, which we also talked about. They wanted freedom of speech. They wanted houses based on need and not your like religious or political affiliation. They wanted jobs based on merit, not where you went to school or where you go to church. And they wanted to repeal the Special Powers Act that allowed for internment without trial and searching and the limit of speech and all of that. And at the first meeting for the People's Democracy, there were 10 people who were elected that did not have any political affiliation. It became part of what they called the Faceless Committee, and Bernadette was one of those people. The Faceless Committee was made because they didn't want people, like they didn't want like student politicians to take over the People's Democracy and like covertly turn it into a political organization. They really like, really actually wanted democracy. So about a week later, on August 16th, 1968, there was another march and it went off without any police interference or anything like that. So the People's Democracy was confident that their cause and and that they were doing the right thing. And they didn't think that they would like face as much opposition for their cause. So they started spreading out through Northern Ireland in an attempt to make branches in different cities and counties. Um, And then they just started receiving a lot of interference, not necessarily from the police, but from uh, mostly a group of people called the Paisleyites. So the Paisleyites were people who followed Reverend Ian Paisley. Reverend Ian Paisley was an anti-Catholic unionist minister who became the leader of an extreme Protestant movement in Northern Ireland. He also founded the Ulster Constitution Defense Committee and the Parliamentary Ulster Protestant Volunteers. He was extreme and relatively militant. So the people who followed him tended to be extreme and relatively militant. So, for example, when the People's Democracy attempted to build a branch of their organization in Omaha, the Paisleyites were so violent towards the representatives that they required a police escort out of town. Now, Bernadette had a very strong feeling towards Ian Paisley, unsurprisingly, But she felt that he wasn't necessarily anti-Catholic as he appeared because she didn't think it was an issue in Northern Ireland against Catholic and Protestants like we've talked about. She felt that Ian Paisley was anti-socialist and anti-left and anti like really anything that he felt was a threat to his power. But the people's democracy was, as its name suggests, a democracy. They were extremely democratic, so much so that no decision could be made without being put to a vote. At meetings, the agenda would be voted on at the beginning, and anyone who wished to speak could speak. 
Paisleyites would sometimes like come and crash the meeting and heckle the people who were trying to speak. And whoever was speaking as part of the people's democracy would just stop and wait and say, all right, well, we hear what you have to say, but right now we're speaking. So if you could just give us a moment, we'd be happy to then pass the mic over to you. But please remain silent while the person who's speaking is speaking. And if that person continued to heckle whoever was speaking, the person speaking would just stop and hand them the mic and be like, well, what you have to say sounds very important. So please, please say it. Go ahead. And sort of just like put that person on the spot and have all the focus go towards them and be like, we'd love to hear what you have to say. And a lot of times, like, they didn't really have anything to say. They were just there to, like, cause discord. And uh, it, it was just this, like, nonviolent approach, killing them with kindness kind of thing of being like, well, we are a democracy. We want to hear all viewpoints. Your viewpoint it sounds annoying, but we're going to hear it, you know. So <laughs> and some of the protests that they were trying to do, not just people's democracy, but also NICRA, they would constantly be rerouted because these Paisleyites or like loyalist counter demonstrators or unionist counter demonstrators would threaten so much violence to the people who were marching that the police would say it was like, quote, for their own safety, they had to reroute them, which always frustrated them. And so on the march that they were conducting on November 4th, 1968, they told the police that they would not be rerouted And if they faced any violence, they wouldn't be violent in return. So once they reached the police barricade, the plan was for five members of the faceless committee to approach them, ask to be let through. And if they were arrested or beaten, then the next five of the faceless committee would go in with the same tactic. And if they were beaten or arrested, then five of the protesters would approach and they would just like go on and on until every single person was beaten or arrested five at a time. But relatively quickly, the police began turning violent and Bernadette recounted that during this march that once the police started getting violent, she just grabbed a megaphone and told everyone to sit down. And again, the intention would be that they would show that the protesters were being peaceful and were practicing civil disobedience while the police officers and the unionists and the loyalists and the Paisleyites were the ones who were being the aggressors. And it was kind of she recalled it being kind of comical because the police were like, the protesters sat down so quickly that the police were like tripping over them and like scraping up their knees and and doing whatever and getting really pissed off. And she said that at one point, she turned to one of the police officers tried to sort of like make a joke with him. Like, oh, look at us, we're sitting so comfortable. And she was basically expecting the police officer to like, you know, call her a bitch or anything like that. She said that the police always called her a stupid bitch, but she denies that she's stupid, which is one of my favorite things that she's ever said. Um, And she was just expecting him to do that or to, to kind of like look the other way or tell her to fuck off or whatever. And he actually kicked her really hard. And because she was on the megaphone, she hadn't been sitting yet. And he kicked her in the leg so hard that her balance went out under her and she fell to the ground. And the people who were there were very like defensive over her. She was like their sister a lot of to a lot of them. And so they immediately like popped up and they went to go look for the constable or the police chief or whoever was in charge. And she had to like hobble after them and tell them to just sit down. And that wasn't the way that they had to do things. And that she knew that legally the police officer had to give them their badge number um, and their name. And so she turned to the police officer and she was like, Hey, 
what is your badge number? What is your name? And he's like, I don't have to fucking tell you that. And she's like, actually, you do. It's literally the law. And he ignored her. And then she turned towards the police officer next to him. And she's like, do you know his name and badge number? And the police officer was like, no, I don't. He's not from here. So this day at this march, they were bringing police officers in from other locations, which they were not supposed to do. And when the constable came over, she was like, hey, this is what happened. This is what's happening. He won't give me his badge number. And the constable was like, okay, yeah, give her your number. And she said that afterwards, she went to report him to the police station and found out that he had done this multiple times to other people and that he was known for being violent and that her like report, if she filed it, was probably going to be the thing that got him fired. So not only were they bringing in police officers from other areas, they were bringing in police officers that were known to be violent, so violent that they were on probation to, to this march that was supposed to be peaceful. So the police officers were already being violent before the march even began. But Bernadette, in that very literal example of her mother turning the other cheek and helping you up, even if you kick her, like quite literally, um, when she was told that he would probably lose his job, she didn't file her report because she didn't want to personally add to the unemployment rate, even though she was attacked by this dude. Like she was physically assaulted by this guy. She could have pressed charges against him. And yet she was like, well, I don't want him to get fired because, you know, I don't want to add to the unemployment rate that's already so high in Northern Ireland. And this March wasn't all that violent other than directly towards her, you know, um, but the marches continued to get more and more violent. So a couple months later on January 1st, 1969, there was a March planned that they were calling the Long March because it was anticipated to be over four days. They were going to march to 70 or so miles from Belfast to Derry. So they met with the Minister of Home Affairs, who at this point was a man named Captain Long. And on December 26th of 1968, they discussed with him the upcoming march. They said that the meeting was civil, that they shook hands, they agreed on everything, they drew up a joint press statement and everything was good to go. And then she said that afterwards, the group went for a cup of coffee and saw that BBC was reporting that Captain Long was saying that he met with the protesters and he asked them not to march and that they refused because they were wishing to provoke the public and the BBC was not interested in hearing the truth. When they tried to call to like challenge a story and tell their side of the story, BBC was like, we're not interested. So this march was already being looked at as something violent and something used to provoke the public and caused outrage when that wasn't their intention and it hadn't even started yet. So already people like the unionists and the loyalists and the Paisleyite counter demonstrators were already having the mindset of like, fuck these guys trying to provoke the public. Fuck these guys trying to cause violence. We're going to go and we're going to try and stop them because we don't want it to descend into violence. And this is like one of the first cases that Bernadette recalls where it was essentially like, propaganda against the Northern Irish was being perpetuated by the British news. And that is something big time again that we see in Bloody Sunday, which I mean, Bloody Sunday was one of the worst days. And I'm looking at my recording and I'm already at an hour. So 
I don't know if we're going to discuss it today or if I'll split this into two episodes. I'm still trying to decide. But Bloody Sunday was a, it was a really, really bad day, as the name connotes. Um, and it, there was a lot of propaganda in the news that directly goes against what people who were there say. So to get back to the January 1st long march. So the march happened anyway. And like I said, there was this perceived threat already happening. Um, So basically, like, they were already feeding into violence before they even started walking. So the first day of their march, they met with some like counter protesters. They met with some violence from the police and the Paisleyites and the unionists and loyalist counter demonstrators. The second day saw these counter demonstrators armed with pickaxes and scythes and saws, which led to the police taking most of the demonstrators in a car and rerouting them which led to the police just like driving them around in circles for hours while I'm sure giggling like school, like little schoolgirls about it. The third day Bernadette, Bernadette said was great. They had barely entered interference. And then the fourth day was absolutely terrible. So they were very close to Derry at this time when they reached a police barrier and decided that they were just going to march through it. They had already been marching for over three days at this point. They were just done. They were tired of everything that was happening. So they just decided they were going to march through the barrier, that they weren't going to be rerouted. Because last time they got rerouted, they were just driven around in circles for hours. And they didn't want this four-day march to turn into a seven-day march, to turn into a 10-day march, you know. And they were so close to Derry. So they made this plan essentially that they were going to just link arms and keep walking. And if someone fell, you held on to them until they regained their balance. And if someone was knocked unconscious, you would not let them go and use them as body weight. And the police began doing the same tactic towards them where they like linked arms and were marching towards them, but they were also kicking, which is a terrible thing to imagine, but also like I think of like the raquettes, which is kind of a comical thing to imagine. Um, but that's not what they were doing. They they were like forcibly stomping people off the road. And Bernadette describes it like a rugby match. And it was just this like back and forth of protesters who the protesters weren't violent, but they just kept walking. And eventually they, they sort of like, you know, pushed the police off the road and got through. Now, because of all of the setbacks, they were supposed to be in Derry at the end of the fourth day and they weren't because of everything that happened. So they spent one more night and were planning on getting to Derry the next morning because they were only about like 10 miles away or so at this point. But that night, the unionists and loyalists and Paisley at counter demonstrators had a meeting, started causing property damage. They were flipping cars. They were setting fires. They were doing all of this stuff to intimidate the protesters to not finish their march into Derry. So the next morning, unsurprisingly, they were all like kind of wary of impending violence. So the protesters decided to take that same tactic of linking arms and just continuing to walk. And then they reached Burntlet Bridge. So the moment they started crossing the bridge, they were stopped by bricks and boulders being thrown at them. And then, according to Devlin's recollection, they were ambushed by screaming people holding planks of wood, bottles, lathes, 
iron bars, crowbars, cudgels studded with nails. It was just this insane, terribly violent ambush. And people were going down left and right. And this formation that they had made of linking the arms and walking through, trying to be as peaceful as possible, wasn't really happening anymore as people were being hit with wood with nails embedded into it. And Bernadette recalled remembering October 5th and how she was just frozen and that sort of like stopped her from getting attacked and she just sort of stood there and then someone ran up to her with a plank of wood with nails embedded into the end of it and swung it at her so she lifted her hands to protect her face and the board embedded into the back of her hand she fell to the ground and just sort of went to the fetal position as multiple people started just hitting her and beating her and then they got frustrated because she wasn't going down because she was in this protective fetal position and they just like moved on to the next person and then she said that she got up and she saw these counter demonstrators and police officers like carrying a woman away to like who knows where and she tried to get involved but was stopped from getting involved in this But she recalled later that it seemed like some of the protesters that she was with ended up getting this woman back. They went up to a police car and were like, please, she needs to be taken to a hospital. And the police officer literally shoved her out of the car and was like, find your own fucking way to the police, to the hospital. Like, it was insane. And she remembers looking around and seeing that the police either were not stopping the violence from the counter demonstrators who were attacking them or they were participating in the violence. So they weren't keeping the peace. They weren't defending anybody. They were fighting against anyone. They were fighting against the marchers, not against people who are like doing the attacking. They're fighting against the peaceful people who are just trying to walk in a peaceful protest. And she remembers going up the road in just this like rampage, just screaming that if she had her way, not one solitary police officer who was there on that day would live to be sorry for what they had done and that there was only one way to deal with these people, which was to give them three weeks for every honest man to get out of the system and then systematically shoot the rest. And she's saying this out loud, walking down the street to the officers and they're like, hey, little lady, you better stop. And she was like, fuck you. I'm gonna keep going. But of course, like I said, when it came to these kinds of things, Bernadette was not violent. So she would not be someone who would cause any violence towards anyone so she wouldn't do this. But it just shows like how enraged she is at the moment that she's like, every single one of you should be systematically shot. And she like kept marching. She ran into Eamon McCann and said that she wanted to go back and look for the people who were next to her that she had linked arms with because she couldn't find them. And he was like, dude, we're going to be lucky if we get out of here with less than three deaths. So if you go back, then we're going to have four deaths. And if you go back, then I'm going to go back. And then we're going to have five deaths. So we just have to keep marching and keep going and hope that these people are not dead. And like, fortunately, nobody died, but a lot of people ended up in the hospital. This didn't really stop the march. At that point, 2000 people were in it. And so about 2000 people arrived at Derry where they were met with bonfires and stones and sticks and burning sticks and bottles and petrol bombs. 
And it was insanity. But they got through and Bernadette made a speech where she called Derry the capital city of injustice. And so much happened in Derry during the Troubles that it's hard to think about anything else that really happened elsewhere during the Troubles. Um, And then after this march, there was no official investigation Um, there was no real justice. There was nobody held accountable for it. And when Major Chichester Clark became prime minister, he just gave everyone that was there amnesty. And again, this is not the first time that we see stuff like this. This is all like, I don't know, Bloody Sunday is just like such a, I might just do an episode entirely on Bloody Sunday because I, we did a lot of research. We talked a lot. We read an entire book. We, we met the author who's actually like a descendant from one of the victims of Bloody Sunday um, or related to one of the victims of Bloody Sunday. And I, there's a lot of knowledge about that. And it's really, really awful. Um, but again, like we'll, we'll talk to this a little bit. So this long march was very frustrating to her, unsurprisingly. So following this long march, three members of parliament resigned and members of the people's democracy saw this as an opportunity to have their voices heard better so they could like really be heard, you know, so they campaigned really hard. They canvassed door to door. They explained their beliefs. They asked people to vote for them and they approached Bernadette to be their candidates. She said she didn't want to. She said she didn't know anything about parliament. She didn't know anything about politics. She'd never been inside the House of Commons. She found the government at Stormont just a complete farce. And even if she had knowledge of politics, she didn't respect the system at all. Didn't want to be a politician. She said that she viewed politicians as people that were only looking out for themselves and would sign this politician's paper so that they could get their paper signed later on. But she just... And she just couldn't do it. She couldn't be that kind of politician because she was the kind of person who would just stand up and say, this is what I think. I don't care if you agree with me or not. This is what is going to happen. And yet she found herself elected. It was because she is becoming the face of the civil rights movement. And she was the one who could solve problems. And she was the one who was not afraid to get something done, even if it was something that negatively affected her. Like I forgot to mention that all the political protests that she was involved in resulted in her getting expelled from school. So she became member of parliament representing Mid-Ulster when she was only 21 years old. That made her the youngest female elected to parliament in Irish history. And she held that title until 2015. So following her election, the press was interested in her as a gimmick. They called her the baby of parliament. But Bernadette took her position very seriously. In an event that's quite foreshadowing in hindsight, there was supposed to be a rights march from Burntlet Bridge, which was where the ambush happened, to Derry with NICRA, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, that descended into absolute violence between mostly the Catholics who lived in the bog side, which was a Catholic area of Derry, and the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which is like a police force. Bernadette recalled arriving and seeing what everything had devolved into and consulting with other members of the civil rights movement on how to sort of stop the violence or reduce the violence. And they convinced residents of the bog side to build barricades, not only to stop them from attacking or retaliating against the police forces, but also to protect the bog side from any violence that the police might do. 
So tempers began to cool, and soon after midnight, the Royal Ulster Constabulary broke down the barricades, damaged property, and beat anyone who tried to flee the flats that many took refuge in. And following this event, Bernadette went to England and addressed Parliament in her maiden speech. So it followed this long discussion in the House about events of the bogside that occurred the days prior. So there was a man named Paul B. Rose, and he represented Manchester, and he said the, quote, tragedy of the events were simply the product of unheeded warnings and an almost uncontrollable situation caused by doing too little too late by members of parliament who flatly refused to acknowledge that there was any cause for concern or anxiety at all about the civil rights and discrimination in Northern Ireland. He stated that the time for peaceful conventions and conversations and debates died when millions of people saw Jerry Fitt, who was a member of parliament representing Belfast West, when they saw his head streaming with blood after a vicious batoning by the Royal Ulster Constabulary on their televisions. They were press people there during this bogside riot that were televising everything that was happening. There was a man named Sir Harmel, Sir Harmar Nichols of Peterborough, who replied that although Mr. Rose was asking for calm, he said that he was using words in a way that felt like putting petrol on flames. And Mr. R. Chichester Clark, representative of Londonderry, which is what they called it, but it's dairy to the Northern Irish, responded that Mr. Rose had over-exaggerated the events that happened in the bog side and the, quote, so-called civil rights movement and attributed everything that happened in the bog side to nothing more than IRA activity and gang youths of 16 or 17 who were goading each other on and very much enjoying the sound of breaking glass. He then went on to say that he visited the bog side the day after this riot and saw firsthand the, quote, stark human misery and anxiety present. And this is what led to Bernadette's maiden speech. She said she didn't even have to look at her notes because everything that I detested about the system was written on his Tory face. She acknowledged his presence in the bog side and mentioned that she was there as well, not the day after, but actually during the riot. She said, I was in the bog side on the same evening, and I assure you, and I make no apology for the fact, that I was not strutting around with my hands behind my back, examining the area and saying, tut tut, every time a policeman had his head scratched. I was going around building barricades because I knew it was not safe for the people to come in. It was not safe for the police to come in, not just for the residents of the bog side, but for the police as well. She acknowledged that the police were human. And if a person is attacked or injured, it's simply human to lift another stone and throw it back in self-defense or anger. And that at the bog side, both sides lost control. She agreed with Chichester Clark, something that she said she never hoped would ever happen and hoped it didn't happen again, that there was never born an Englishman who understands the Irish people, as well as the rampant, stark human misery present in Derry. Not only that weekend, but present for the last 50 years and in both Catholic and Protestant areas of the city. Those in the house commended and praised her for her courage, while the press seemed to develop a bad taste. She said about it that the press had discovered that their little child of parliament is a monster who does not care about their parliament or their parliamentary system or their parliamentary formalities or their parliamentary parties. So following her speech, she became known as the one who got things done. She said that the man who stood at the door told her that he didn't know why she bothered to see people because everyone else ducks and hides and forgets that they were once like the people who were coming in to ask for their help. She became quickly frustrated with the parliamentary procedures and overall air of apathy that she claimed was present while she was there. 
she said in her book, The Price of My Soul, nothing really matters. Parliament is just a friendly club. We, the biggest phonies in the business, love sincerity. It's so refreshing. Makes us think of when we were young. Awfully difficult to come in at a by-election. I came in at a by-election. And you feel like saying, and I wish to God you'd go out by a by-election. She said that she was basically against Parliament and felt that they didn't have a right to rule over them and that she felt like her maiden speech was important at the time, but she wished that she would have instead just swore her oath to the people and be thrown out in results. So opinions in the media ranged from that she committed perjury when she took her oath to the Queen, which was said by our favorite Ian Paisley, to that she was the greatest national disaster since the famine, which was said by unionist Christopher Bland to that she was incredibly honest. She said that a taxi driver said that the only other person as honest as her that had entered Parliament was Guy Fox, who, if you don't know who Guy Fox is, he was the man in 1605 who tried to blow up Parliament. Although my favorite has to be the coven of witches that reached out to her. Naturally, my focus being the history of witchcraft, it caught my attention. So I'll read you the whole letter that she said that she received from them. Dear Madam, you are so beautifully evil that myself and my fellow witches in the South Down Coven have decided to make you one of us. And on such and such a night, they would invoke the Prince of Evil and with the guts of a toad and the legs of a cock and so forth, would initiate me into the whole business. And if I ever was to deviate from the path of evil, the consequences would be disastrous. Two weeks later, the second communication, as they called it, arrived to say the initiation ceremony had gone off without a hitch. The Prince of Evil had turned up and would from now on be forever at my side. He will always be with you, perhaps in the nod of a strange priest or the wave of an old man, the smile of a child with a friendly brush of a big black dog. And and then it said, this is a final communication you will receive from us unless you deviate from your work of evil. Whether it be true or not, I've heard nothing more on the subject. Was it necessary to read that entire thing? No. Did I enjoy every single part of it? Yes. <laughs> so, so remember when I said the stuff in, that happened in the bog side when she was elected was like kind of foreshadowing. So this is why on August 12th, that is uh, the day of the apprentice boy procession in Derry. So this celebrates when basically like when Protestants defended the city in 1689 for over 100 days. And it has become this whole like celebratory march in Derry. But with the political climate in 1969, it was very possible that this could end in conflict. And the press correspondents came in droves in anticipation of this violence. And unfortunately, it did descend into violence, partially because of the perceived hypocrisy that civil rights marches that tended to lean Catholic were banned. But this Protestant march went off without like relatively little government interference. So it began with just like words being exchanged and then stones were thrown and then baton blows and then tear gas and then petrol bombs. And it became known as the Battle of the Bogside. So it lasted um, until the 14th of August, 1969. And there were like skirmishes that broke out in other areas as well. And this is when the first child died during the Troubles. So this was a little nine-year-old boy named Patrick Rooney, who was the oldest child of a Catholic family in Belfast, who was in his home when shots rang out 
and he was shot in the back of the head and was the first child casualty of this trouble in Ireland. And there are actually quite a lot of children who died during the troubles. And it's something to me that I've always had a really hard time with because like, if you're an adult and you choose to leave your house and, and participate in a march, or if you are an adult and you choose to become a police officer um, or choose to become a soldier or if you are in the IRA and you choose to throw petrol bombs or or do car bombs, like, I'm not going to talk about the ethics of any of those decisions, but those are decisions that you made. A child can't make those decisions. And there were a lot of children who died during the Troubles in Ireland being shot or being run over by tanks and, and all of that. And it just really breaks my heart to to read about that and to learn about that because there are a lot of people who try to say that like the troubles in Ireland wasn't a war. It wasn't a civil war, but I have a hard time with that because there were so many civilian casualties. Um, and I don't know. I don't, I don't know if my thoughts are fully like articulated with that or if my thoughts are like fully formed with that, but it's definitely something that, Every time you would read about something from this point on, there was typically like children or teenagers who perished. And I don't know, something about that just it makes me really sad. And it makes me really uncomfortable. And um, I don't know if I can like fully articulate my thoughts with that. But to get back to Bernadette, um, shortly after this Battle of the Bogside, <laughs> she wrote that... There was some doubt whether she personally was guilty of treason or not because she threw stones at policemen. And Major Chichester Clark said that she had incited bogsiders to rebellion and that she plotted to overthrow the state. But she said the situation in Northern Ireland was such that nobody cared. However, she was later arrested in 1970 for her involvement at the Battle of the Bogside and she was incarcerated for a few months. Um... I've read anywhere from four to six months. So it just depends on like what source I read. I couldn't find a like concrete anything about that. But she was incarcerated for a few months due to the Battle of the Bogside. So directly after this, she went to the United States with the hopes of raising $1 million to assist the people of Northern Ireland, as well as an overall, like as well as raise an overall awareness of the troubles that were happening in Northern Ireland as well. So she actually went on Meet the Press. There's a YouTube video of her on Meet the Press, which is really interesting. And basically it was a bunch of people that were questioning her and they were like, why are you trying to raise all this money? Like, um, how can we guarantee that the money that you're trying to raise here won't go to the rebel Catholic IRA And she said that the money that she was raising was going towards people who were suffering in Northern Ireland and people who couldn't afford food and people whose family members were killed because of the troubles and said that they could be assured that the money that she was raising would not go to arm the IRA because starving children and dead men can't shoot. She met with the American civil rights leaders and members of the Black Panther Party. She also chastised Irish Americans wherever she went for their racism and treatment of the black community. 
She danced with a black like club singer at one point. She traveled around the entire country and it got to the point where people in America were getting so annoyed with her and her extreme political stance that they began calling her Fidel Castro in a miniskirt. This is the trip also where she received the golden key to New York City. But when she returned back to Ireland, she said that she didn't want it. And she gave it to Eamon McCann, who when he came back at the beginning of 1970, he actually presented it to the Black Panther Party. And she said that that was who it truly belonged to anyway, and that she didn't want, you know, this farce of, uh, of a key for her. Okay, now we are at the moment that I have been foreshadowing this entire episode, which is Bloody Sunday. So prepare yourself, trigger warning, lots of violence. I know that we've had a lot of violence already. Um, but yeah, this this part is especially violent. So on January 30th, 1972, there was a civil rights march against internment in Derry. So remember, like I was talking about, there were a lot of people who could just be like arrested and thrown in jail without any cause for no sentence. Um, and it would just stay in there for as long as they decided that they wanted to keep him there for. So Bernadette was present and was supposed to speak uh, once the march was completed. They were trying to get to the city center of Derry and there were police there. There were British paratroop soldiers who were brought in from outside of Derry as well because there was this expectation that it might turn to violence. So during this time, the police and the soldiers typically resorted to shooting rubber bullets and using water cannons and tear gas and stuff like that. So everyone in the march was kind of like mentally prepared for that. A lot of them had gas masks. Um, A lot of them were prepared for the rubber bullets. They were prepared for the water cannons and all of that. So they were marching towards the city center. But there was a police barrier. So the organizers decided that instead they would reroute and they would have their rally at Free Dairy Corner instead. So Free Dairy Corner is literally like an entrance to like the Catholic part of town. And someone had painted on a wall saying you are now entering Free Dairy. So a lot of the group went that way. Bernadette got on the platform to give her speech. But there were some people a lot of them were teenagers who were annoyed that everything was being thwarted and they were sort of annoyed that the British paratroopers were even there. And so they started throwing rocks at the soldiers. Nothing more than that, just some rocks. And Bernadette was beginning her speech when she heard the familiar sounds of shots being fired, figuring that they were rubber bullets. She told everyone to sit down and that they couldn't shoot them if they sat down, which is the same tactic that she had used in multiple other marches that she had been involved in. And then they received the news that it was not rubber bullets. The paratroopers that had been brought into Derry were firing unprovoked into the crowd and people started running away. It descended into pandemonium and shots continued to be fired. Most of the bullets were shot into people's backs as they were running away from the paratroopers. So Bernadette dove off the platform and hid as 26 people were shot by British soldiers and 13 people died that day and one more died a few months later of his injuries. Jackie Duddy was 17 years old and he was shot in the back as he was running away from soldiers. He didn't realize how serious it was and people who were next to him recall him laughing, being a child and thinking that it was all a joke. And then he was shot dead and he was unarmed. 
and a child. Michael Kelly was also 17. He was shot in the stomach while at the barricade and was also unarmed. Hugh Gilmore was also 17 and was shot in the back as he ran away from the soldiers. William Nash was 19 and was shot in the chest while at a barricade. And his father, who watched him get shot and killed, ran to his aid and was then shot and injured while going to help his son. But fortunately, if you can even use that word, he survived. But Michael McDade, who was 20 years old, was not as lucky when he was shot in the face and killed, also going to help William Nash. John Young was 17 and was shot in the face while standing on a barricade. Kevin McKelleny was 17 and shot in the back while he was trying to crawl to safety. Jim Ray was 22 and was shot in the back as he was running away, didn't die, was on the ground, and a soldier came and shot him in the back again to make sure that he died. And some people who were nearby literally had to play dead and watch so that they didn't meet the same fate. William McKinney was 26 and shot in the back as he ran away. Jerry McKinney was 35 and was running away when he ran into a soldier, put up his hands and said, please don't shoot, don't shoot, and was shot. And the bullet went through his body and shot Jerry Donahue, who was 17. Donahue was taken to a house nearby where a doctor examined him and searched his pockets for identification. And then some people, including Jackie Daddy's brother, put him in a car to bring him to the hospital when they were stopped by soldiers. And when they tried to convince the soldiers to let them take him to the hospital and then they could do whatever they wanted afterwards, the soldiers refused and Jerry died in the back seat. And later on, the soldiers said that they found four nail bombs in his pocket, even though his family said that he wore his pants so tight, he couldn't even fit a pack of cigarettes in his pocket. And remember, his pockets were searched for identification and there was nothing in it. So the police or the soldiers most likely planted these nail bombs on his body to justify the killings of that day. Then there was Patrick Doherty, who was 31 and shot from behind while crawling to safety. He didn't die right away and witnesses recall that he was screaming for help and begging someone to help him because he didn't want to die alone. And Barney McGuigan, who was 41, went out to help him while waving a white handkerchief to indicate that he had no negative intentions and that he was unarmed and was shot in the back of the head while trying to help Patrick Doherty. And then there was John Johnston, who was 59, who was 59, and he died later from his injuries. He wasn't even at the march. He was going to visit a friend, and he died almost six months later due to his injuries. So this day became known as Bloody Sunday, and I want to reiterate that seven of the victims of that day were under the age of, tw- of 20. And later it was found that General Robert Ford had visited Derry at the beginning of the month and noted Quote, I am coming to the conclusion that the minimum force necessary to achieve a restoration of law and order is to shoot selected ringleaders after clear warnings have been issued. And then this same general, within the same day of this massacre, released a press statement that said that they were being shot upon by the rebel IRA and that everything that they did was just in defense of themselves and retaliation for being shot at first, even though there's literally no evidence of them being shot at first. There is a little evidence that after the shots started, some people fired some shots back. But if I recall correctly, it was like three shots fired. They also said that there were reports that they were saying that they only fired a few shots and reporters said that there were more than that 
amount of people dead and injured. And so how could it only be that they only fired a few shots when they were 26 people who were injured? And there was also a woman who was run over by a tank and just a complete disregard for life that day. So the next day, Bernadette was in London to speak out about what happened, and she wasn't allowed to, even though she was the only member of parliament who was present in Derry the day prior. British Home Secretary Reginald Malding made a statement where he basically said what the British Army already said, that the British soldiers were simply returning fire and were in the right, and it was simply an unfortunate necessity that 13 people were killed and many more were injured. So Bernadette stood up, walked across the stage, and slapped him. Although some reports say that she grabbed his hair and scratched his face. It became known as the slap heard round the world. Immediately following she spoke to the press, she stated that Malding's statement did not have one substantiated fact in it, and at no stage did he even say that he regretted that 13 people were dead. When asked if it was simply an emotional reaction on her part, she said no. It was quite coldly and calmly done and that she simply delivered a proletarian protest to protest the fact that he was responsible for the murder of 13 people. One of the journalists then stated that what she did was unladylike and undemocratic, and she responded with a hint of this mark at the very beginning, unladylike. There's a woman whose body was carried out of the bog side this morning. She was shot in the back by paratroopers. They didn't ask her if she was a lady. Undemocratic. I was the only person who was there and I was not even allowed to ask a simple question. Undemocratic. 13 unarmed civilians were shot in the back by a murdering group of thugs with the tacit support of the Home Secretary and no doubt the orders of the minister. When asked if she planned on apologizing at all to Malding, she claimed that she was just sorry she couldn't get him by the throat. Bloody Sunday was not only a turning point for Northern Ireland, but for Bernadette herself. Bernadette, who so desperately wanted democracy, was failed by it. Bernadette, who hated the press, embraced them afterwards, giving a statement explaining the realities of Bloody Sunday that she was kept from speaking in the House. Bernadette, who for years believed in the merits and progress of a nonviolent and civil approach, coldly and calmly walked across the House and struck Malding. She was suspended from Parliament for six months, and after this, she seemed to take a step back from politics, whether by her own choice, the choice of the people, or a mixture of both. The following year, she married Michael McCallisky and had three children. In 1974, Bernadette's Parliament seat was taken over by an extreme unionist. In the same year, she was a founding member of the Irish Republican Socialist Party, but those close to her reported that she was becoming disillusioned by the public life and lost much of support of the Republicans by 1979. So the next time we really see her in the news is in 1980, when she supported the hunger strikes that were happening in the Northern Ireland prisons. So, again, very complex topic. But basically, during this time, people who were part of the IRA were being arrested and treating as inmates. But they felt that they were at war and they were actually political prisoners and wanted the rights of political prisoners. They wanted to not be forced to wear a prison uniform. They wanted to not have to do prison work. They wanted the right to associate with other prisoners and organize educational and recreational activities. They wanted to be able to have one visitor, one letter, and one parcel per week and a full restoration of remission loss during the protest. So they did blanket protests at first where they refused to wear the clothes that were provided and only wrapped blankets around themselves. 
They then did dirty protests in 1980 where they refused to wash and sort of were like smearing excrements and food on the walls that were then had to be like power washed out. And in 1980, they did a hunger strike. So this first hunger strike in 1980, seven men were selected to pay homage to the seven men who signed the Irish Declaration of Independence during the Easter Rising. And it lasted for 53 days. And the British government seemed to concede on their demands. It didn't end up working out. And in 1981, there was a second hunger strike that resulted in the death of 10 men. Bobby Sands, who died after 66 days and was actually elected to Parliament while he was on hunger strike. Francis Hughes, who died after 59 days. Raymond McCreesh, who died after 61 days. Patsy O'Hara, who died after 61 days. Joe McDonnell, who died after 61 days. Martin Hurston, who lasted 46 days. Kevin Lynch, who died after 71 days. Karen Doherty, who died after 73 days. Thomas McElwee, who lasted 62 days. And Michael Devine, who died after 60 days. All of the men who died were under the age of 30. There were 13 other men who also participated in the 1981 hunger strike, but they were either taken off of the hunger strike by their families once they lost consciousness or stopped when the demands were finally met. And one of the reasons why it took all this is because the members of the IRA considered everything that they did to be part of a political war. But the British government, including British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, disagreed, saying that they were criminals. There's a quote that Margaret Thatcher said that said, there is no such thing as a political murder, political bombing, or political violence. There's criminal murder, criminal bombing, and criminal violence. There's also a big debate on a moral level because prisoners and the families of the prisoners and members of the IRA and members of Sinn Féin and other Republican organizations and a lot of people who like consider themselves Republicans considered this murder because the British government let them die, where others believe that they committed suicide and others considered that they were martyrs of the cause. So Bernadette was very much in support of the hunger strikes. In 1980, she participated in and organized marches that supported the prisoners. And the same year, four people who were leaders of this campaign were assassinated. And on January 18th, 1981, an attempt was made for Bernadette to join them. So according to the police report, at around 8 a.m., assailants cut the phone lines before using a sledgehammer to break down the front door. Michael Michalski was shot in the back and legs while shouting a warning to Bernadette, who ran upstairs and hid under the bed. The gunman fired blindly into the mattress and wounded her chest and legs. Her children, who were getting ready for school, were thankfully in another room and were unharmed with the whole attack. In 2016, Bernadette spoke out about the event and said that there were British soldiers who happened to be outside her home. It wasn't a, a constant thing that there were British soldiers who were patrolling outside of her home the British said that it was just a coincidence that they happened to be there but she recalls saying that there were British soldiers outside of her home and yet the would-be assassins were able to presumably loudly break down the door fire multiple shots into her husband and then pause as they ran upstairs and fired multiple shots into the mattress that Bernadette was hiding under and they were able to leave without being immediately caught. 
Bernadette then said that the British soldiers came into her home and waited 30 minutes before alerting the authorities while her children were still in the house. In the same 2016 interview, she said, I'm entitled to the truth around the British government's involvement in trying to kill me, and I am entitled to pursue it. So she believed that the attempt on her life was collusion. So three men were arrested and one named Andrew Watson, who was 25 years old and a member of the Ulster Defense Association, pled guilty the following year. Bernadette didn't let this stop her and continued to lead marches and demonstrations in support of the hunger strikes. But there's little that can be found of her political involvement in the years following other than speaking at Dominic McGlinchey's funeral in 1994. So McGlinchey was the former Irish National Liberation Army's chief of staff. He was gunned down and shot at least 10 times in front of his 16-year-old son. He was being admonished by the press and regarded as a terrorist. And Bernadette called the press curs and dogs and hoped that every single one of them rotted in hell. She was later asked about the statement and in troop. <laughs> Bernadette Devlin Mikowski fashion. She said that she regretted the part where she wished them all to rot in hell, not because she didn't want them to face repercussions, but because she no longer believed in hell. So she's still speaking up for civil rights even today and doing interviews. But the last I read, she said that she lived in a small town with like 250 people in it. And while I think for some people that may be kind of an interesting anticlimactic end of her story today she said in 1969 in her book that she didn't think that she'd ever go back to having a normal life and i really just kind of love that for her that she's just having a quiet life in the countryside in northern ireland and having a relatively quiet normal life so like i said i'm really open to doing an episode diving more into the troubles in northern ireland or just like even just some of the events like the hunger strikes of bloody sunday or battle of the bog side or like subsequent reports or myriad of other things there's a lot of things that i spoke about today and if any of it is interesting to you and you want to learn more just reach out to me and let me know i'm more than open to it i might do it again anyway but i want to to veer off of bernadette for a moment because like i said I, i just took a class on the troubles so we talked about everything not just bernadette um and not just like bloody sunday not just the hunger strikes we talked about a myriad of things and one of the things that we talked about was how the troubles ended in northern ireland and we had to read an article by george j mitchell who was an american politician who helped negotiate the peace proceedings in the 1990s and there were some quotes from his article that i found myself like highlighting and writing down because they seem like really pertinent to how things are here right now. And for him, it was at the end of the troubles that he wrote this. And I want to end this podcast on a positive note because Northern Ireland and reading about the things that happened in Northern Ireland was it was horrific at times. And if that sort of situation in Northern Ireland can find peace and negotiate, however fragile it may still be today, if they can try and find a peace and try to put their differences aside or try to reach a negotiation, then there has to be hope for America, that it's going to be hard and it's going to be a fight. But I'm hoping that one day it doesn't have to be like this anymore. So 
here are some quotes from the article that I read, which will be linked in the description in my sources, like how I always do it. Sometimes the mountains seem so high and the river so wide that it's hard to continue the journey. But no matter how bleak the outlook, the search for peace must go on. One way to lead is to create an attitude of success. The belief that problems can be solved and that things can be better, not in a foolish or unrealistic way, but in a way that creates hope and confidence among the people. Seeking an end to conflict is not for the timid or the tentative. It takes courage, perseverance, and steady nerves in the face of violence. Peace and political stability are not too much to ask for. They are the minimal need for a decent and caring society. Despair is the fuel for instability and conflict everywhere. And the last thing that I want to read was his personal account of what happened directly after negotiations were reached in April of 1998. So he said, when the agreement was reached at about six o'clock in the evening of April 10th, 1998, which was Good Friday, which often this agreement is known as the Good Friday Agreement for that very reason. We'd been in negotiation for nearly two years and continuously for about the last 40 hours. We were elated and exhausted. In my parting comments, I told the delegates that the agreement was for me the realization of a dream that had sustained me for three and a half years, the longest, most difficult years of my life. Now, I said, I have a new dream. It is to return to Northern Ireland in a few years with my young son. We will roam the country, taking in the sights and sounds of that lovely land. Then, on a rainy afternoon, we will drive to Stormont and sit quietly in the visitor's gallery in the Northern Assembly. There, we will watch and listen as the members debate the ordinary issues of life in a democratic society, education, health care, tourism, and agriculture. There will be no talk of war, for the war will have been long over. There will be no talk of peace, for peace will be taken for granted. And on that day, the day on which peace is taken for granted in Northern Ireland, I will be fulfilled and people of good will everywhere rejoice. And my hope and my dream is that we can one day reach that and have that dream, even though right now it seems like we're living in a fucking nightmare. Thanks for listening, friends. Maybe next time I'll get back to the tutors. Maybe not. I don't know. Who knows <laughs> any sort of reality anymore? We'll see how I feel once I sit down and start researching, I guess. Um, maybe we'll say screw it and do mythology so that I can disassociate into myths. I don't know. What, what a time to be alive. I've been disassociating a lot into books. Uh, some of them I've read are really terrible and some of them are really good, but most of them are really terrible. And um, I'm thinking about starting another podcast where I bitch about books that I've read, like fiction books that I've read. So if you like fiction... And the way that I storytell and rant about things, uh, possibly stay tuned for that. Uh, so stay tuned for the possibility of me uploading on YouTube again. We'll see about that. Um, I got a research position with the college starting in the fall that I'm like really, really, really excited about. And um, I'm having to make a legitimate office in my apartment. So that might also mean a filming space again. Who knows about that either? But <laughs> We might descend further into dystopian hellscape tomorrow, so there might not be time for anything. Also, I'm depressed. <laughs> Sorry about it. But I think I will end it on one quote that she said 
in 2016 about how she got involved with the civil rights movement. So in actually in December of 2021, um, it wasn't 2016, it was 2021. So just a few months ago, she was asked how she was drawn to the civil rights movement. And she said, have you ever had an experience of not knowing something till you knew it? And then when you find it out, you realize that you always knew that. You just couldn't put it all together, couldn't name it. And I think for many young people like myself, the demands of the civil rights movement, the idea that we should have equality, that we should have rights, that we had been denied them, and you knew that what you were saying was right and had to be said, and now was the time. And I think that that's something for us all to remember, and that's something for us all to kind of think about. So thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard and like to hear more, please consider subscribing or leaving a review or joining my Patreon. Remember, friends, history may be watching, so don't fuck it up because now is the time. Bye.